I saw a tweet that I've been meaning to send to you because it made me think of you. And, uh, I don't know where this I'm is going to go. <laughs> I know. I'm totally delaying when you're like, I have a hard stop. And I'm like, well, let me blabber about stuff then. <laughs> um, <laughs> but someone said, describe uh, 2020 in five words or less. And then someone responded and said, it's five words or fewer. Oh. And I feel like we've had this conversation and we it have. made me think of you. Okay. It's dumb. It's a distinction without a difference. <laughs> it's just a way to make people feel bad. I don't like it at all. I'm firmly opposed. Well, actually. Yeah. Actually. <laughs> Hello and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed, a weekly podcast from your friends at ThoughtBot about developing great software. I'm Steph. And I'm Chris. And together we're here to share a bit of what we've learned along the way. So, hey, Chris, how's life? How are you doing today? Uh, life is good. I am doing well. Been doing a lot of performance stuff in the past two weeks. One of the clients that I'm working with, the other developer, we sort of share work in the back end of this system. And he just recently had a baby, which is very exciting, uh, but obviously a reason that we want him to not have to look at the app at all. And so I kindly offered to like, hey, I, I got this. Uh, I can keep the ship afloat. It'll be fine. The first morning that he was not necessarily like the day that his baby was born, uh, the app just started falling over on itself. Uh, they're running a promotional sort of thing right now that's causing the traffic to be like twice what it normally is. And the performance tuning of the app was just on that razor's edge. This is that thing that happens with performance where it's fine, it's fine, it's fine, totally not fine. So we ended up in totally not fine land. And uh, there has been a sequence of different fixes that I have attempted to apply to keep things going without any real downtime or maintenance periods or anything like that. So yeah, that's been intense. I can share one or two specific things, but yeah, that's, that's sort of where I'm at. That sounds uh, terrible for you personally, and uh, but I'm excited <laughs> to hear about uh, what you went through and like the performance fixes that you applied. I think it's probably worth me collecting a little bit more of my thoughts and maybe in a future episode we can dig in a little bit deeper because there's it's been a multifaceted adventure across a lot of different layers. But there was one quick fix. So this is the one fire pro tip that I can share. Uh, just one shut of, it down. Shut it all down. <laughs> oh, definitely. That was the first morning. It just started failing on itself. And we were having runaway requests and everything was sad and tons and tons of errors. And we collected ourselves together, myself, that other developer, because he was still on the project at that point. He had yet to actually go to the hospital or anything. And the engineering manager for the team, and we're all just sort of on a call talking through different options. What can we do? And then I started to just raise, I'm like, have we turned it off and turned it back on yet though? Have we done that? Because we definitely should do that. And then I actually started to see particular things that pointed towards that being a reasonable solution, not just a, I have no other ideas. Uh, and that totally fixed it, but only for a brief period. What did you turn off uh, when you say turn it off and turn it back on? Restart all the production dynos. So that's the ah, actual okay. mechanism there. So just restart all of the processes. The particular error that we were seeing in this case was a relatively new one. We've seen it sort of intermittently for a while, but now it started happening in sort of a cascading way where the Puma workers would lose their connection pool. They would be leaking the connections to the database. And it was based on, as far as we can tell, an improper shutdown of the worker was causing the connection that it was holding onto at that point to be leaked and not returned to the pool. So it wasn't available for future workers. 
Uh, eventually, we trace this back to rack timeout, which we're using to prevent runaway requests. If we have a really long running thing, Heroku is going to shut it off at 30 seconds anyway. So we get a little bit ahead of that so that we own the shutdown as opposed to having Heroku a little more aggressively shut us down. But it turns out if you have a bunch of those going on, which was where we had found ourselves, it can fail in that particular way where it loses the connection pool. So there was uh, thankfully a relatively recent like end of last year update to rack timeout to change the mechanism by which it works, where I think it's a little more gentle in its shutdown mechanics normally, but it will count up and you can tell it with this new version, hey, if you do this four or more times, just kill the process entirely so that it restarts. And that prevented this failure mode and basically it was one of those like i deployed a new version of a gem i changed one environment variable and everything's good now awesome awesome so that's that was step one and then we'll hear about the (laughs) the other steps i don't know maybe next week or a future episode yes yeah there's been a whole bunch of them and there have been some wins and some losses but that was the one like if you happen to see connection pool issues maybe try this but yeah, other ones, we'll, we'll chat in the future about them because they'll be fun. But I still want to collect my thoughts. Still got to survive this period as well. So Are, are things back to being stable now? They are. Um, yeah, actually, things are better than they were previously. There's a bunch of little database level tunings and new indices and change some queries and chase down some N plus ones and a bunch of that, as well as adding a follower database. Now I've actually just kind of summarized it. Here we go. This one will <laughs> make it to a future episode. <laughs> Uh, or maybe it's I'm worth sneaky revisiting like then, that. But, I still got it from you. <laughs> but yeah, basically just tried to take load off at both the dyno level and then more so switch the focus recently this week to database stuff. So lots of checking the cost of certain queries that were happening, adding specific indices to some of the biggest tables, uh, and then adding a read replica or a follower database. We have a bunch of loose ad hoc query sort of systems. Those are all connected with a read-only connection to the production database, but that was putting additional strain on it. So we've switched that off now, and it's on the the follower. So only production traffic goes to the primary production database. Oh, cool. Yeah, okay. That sounds like a lot of great improvements. It just stinks when it's always under so much stress. It's been a little bit of throw a bunch of stuff against the wall and see what sticks. And there have definitely been some things. I tried to swap out the dyno type that we were using. So we're using the biggest performance M, I want to say, is the dyno type. And so it's got like 14 gigs of RAM or something like that. And you can fit a bunch of processes and workers on it. But it felt mismatched because like an individual Rails process only needs eh, a couple hundred megabytes of memory and so i wanted to have more granular scaling at the dyno level as opposed to two big dynos that run the show Uh, but unfortunately that just didn't work out and i haven't been able to look into that more deeply and understand why there's also a lot of the magic of tuning how many dynos do i need how many workers for puma how many threads for puma uh how many database connections how's sidekick gonna affect this what about redis there's a whole bunch of things And also, how much memory does the database have? There's so many different numbers, and you have to add them up in weird ways. You are totally in a world that I touch so infrequently that I'm of zero help. And this is one of those moments (laughs) where Ebes, a thought botter, uh, comes to mind because Ebes has really lots of experience in this area. And I remember running into these connection issues and trying to calculate how many connections do I need and how many threads. And he had a nice way of walking through, like, this is how you calculate. These are the other things to consider. I wonder if he has a blog post or not. I don't know. I'll have to reach out to him and find out. There's one, I'll link to it or otherwise maybe encourage him (laughs) to see if he'll help the world with his knowledge. 
Well, yeah, I would definitely be interested in seeing that. I, I've seen a number of them now, and each of these little calculators is like, here's the canonical calculator. Now you just use this, and then you'll understand it. And I somehow walk away knowing less than I knew when I showed up. But anyway, things are good now. I'm hoping to make them a little bit better so that we don't have another one of these performance is fine, is fine, is fine, is not fine. I don't want to see another one of those happen. So I want to get a little bit more ahead of things, which is why I think there's still some more work and some more experimentation to be done. But um yeah, like I said, thankfully things are stable now, and I can hopefully head into the weekend without paying too much attention to this system. But uh, yeah, how about you? What's been up in your week? Yeah, I, I sure hope you have a calm weekend. So let's see. Oh, I have that silly TV update that we talked about last time that then I'm trying to hold myself accountable <laughs> to Thank provide you. that update. I appreciate that. <laughs> so you definitely have a free TV is my guess. Oh, totally. Totally have a TV. It wasn't a scam at all. (laughs) And three cars. (laughs) So it turns out I didn't win a TV. I know. Big shock and surprise, (laughs) right? (laughs) What I won was the chance to win a TV, which is fine. That's totally fine. But even as someone who has worked with a legal team and crafting like these direct mailer competitions and sending those out, they still managed to like start to trick me into thinking like, is this real? It's kind of real. I can't tell if it's real. I called them and they told me it's real. And so they even managed to trick me. And it wasn't until I finally spoke with someone at the dealership that was just more of a I don't know, willing to give me context and tell me what was going on, uh, that they said, well, you have to bring in your winning number and then compare it to our board to then find out if you want a TV. And I was like, that's so misleading. And I don't, I'm not going to do that. (laughs) I was like, thank you for being honest with me because I won't do that. But I feel like this is the new baseline that companies are hitting now with trying to get people out of their homes. And they're like, COVID's going on, but hey, maybe you want a TV. (laughs) So come see us. (laughs) And I mean, if you happen to be here and you want to shop for a car, that's totally fine. Uh, What's the, what's the quote from Dumb and Dumber? These are IOUs. They're better than money or something like that. Something like that. Yeah, Yeah, that's that's what I'm thinking here. (laughs) This is a chance to win, which is even better than actually winning because you get the excitement too. you know, you don't want to just win. That's boring. Just a TV. Everybody's got a TV. This is a chance to win a TV. You could help them write their next marketing material for when they do their next competition. You can help sell it to the people. This world. Yeah. (laughs) So that's that's a thing. And um it was just kind of amusing. I will say, though, because they did such a, a great effort at trying to mislead me into thinking that I'd won something, I, I won't buy a car from them. <laughs> Not the that I'm in the market. Effect of intended, but. but it definitely had the opposite effect where I'm like, cool, cool, cool. You tried that hard to mislead me. I don't think I'm going to enter a transaction with you <laughs> because of that. So it's, it, was, it was fun. Or maybe fun is the wrong word. It was interesting. But in other news, more technical related, I watched a video or a talk by Sarah Drosner, and she has a video called The Art of Code Comments. It may have been at the JS conference in Hawaii, which every time I think about the fact that they had a conference in Hawaii, I'm like, that's just a pro move right there. I often like to uh, say snarky stuff about JavaScript, but I'm like, oh, conference in Hawaii? Totally sign me up. I will love JavaScript to go to Hawaii, uh, but it's for that conference. And um, she does a fabulous job. She's a she's a really great speaker, and she touches on the belief that you don't need comments if you write clean code. 
And she's like, well, I, I sort of believe that, but I think that's a very shallow definition. And there are times that comments can be very useful. But a number of us, we've read comments and they've either uh, misled us or they will often be used as a crutch. So instead of finding other ways to try to be more communicative with our code, that we'll use comments instead. So she advocates that comments are helpful because the code can describe how, but it often can't explain the why. So there are times that we want to have a why and put that as a comment. And I'm excited that you and I are talking about this because I know you have strong feelings about comments. But yeah, so she was just kind of advocating for when to use comments and when to avoid using comments. And yeah, what are your thoughts? I'm very intrigued. Uh, I follow Sarah on the internet and definitely like her work and respect her voice. So I'm really, I, I expect that she has found a handful of examples that are like, yeah, these are really good places where a comment uniquely is able to express intent. Generally, I have struggled to find examples like that in my work. And I've mostly found the counter example where there is a comment and it's incorrect or it's out of date or it would have been better expressed in the code and often i see people describing the what of a thing like this is a handler that does blah and it's just like response dot handler and then blah it's like, that, it already said that in the code though and also the like temporal nature of it the comments can go stale so quickly and so i'd rather put that in a git commit message or all of those sort of things but again i'm super interested if there are pointed examples here uh, because i expect that there are I want to be convinced. I want to be I want to have my mind changed. Well, I'll have to say to watch her talk because she's going to do a far better job than I can of summarizing all her points. But she does speak directly to some of those concerns and highlights that if you're describing what the code is doing, that's not useful because that's what we want the code to do for us. And then there's other examples where she'll advocate for longer method names instead of writing a comment that explains what that method does. And one particular example that she provided is maybe you've run into something that's very specific that you need to handle in the code. And this circles back to like the why instead of the how. So one common example is we had to write the code this way because of a very tricky bug in the browser or something that you don't have control over and you want to give context. So that was her example of like when a comment would be helpful to future readers. She also has an interesting example where she's talking about teams that have more overlap and similar background. So they tend to be able to lean on the same ideas and approach to writing code versus if you have a more disparate team that all have different skill sets. So then comments may also be more helpful if you find that you're having to navigate back and forth and you have people that are not as accustomed to a code base or a particular language. So they're not going to be able to infer quite as much as someone who is as skilled in that language. I think I have mixed feelings on that one and I have to see more examples, but I also can understand how that would be helpful. But yeah, overall, she just talks about there are times when comments can be useful. And that's I think that's really what I appreciate so much about this talk is she approaches it from a very practical, very positive perspective of there are lots of rules that we will try to internalize as developers and we will stick to them. And there are times when it's really worth reanalyzing those rules that we have to say, does it fit here? And I think she does a great job of balancing that sort of inner voice and also guidance from your team and discussing when does a comment become helpful versus misguiding. Yeah, I'll definitely have to give this a look because I, I feel like I have probably overcorrected into the comments are almost never a good idea space. And 
similar to what you were just saying there, the overly dogmatic or absolute sort of frame of mind on anything I found to not really work out. So I'm, I'm very interested in the examples you just gave there sort of align with the few that are at the edge of my belief structure. Uh, as an aside, I just pulled up Sarah's Twitter profile because I, I really appreciate this about it. The like extra picture, the big wide picture at the top of her profile is a still frame from the movie Labyrinth where the large character Ludo is talking to Sarah and says, Sarah, friend. Uh, and I just appreciate the heck out of that image and that that is what she chooses for her Twitter bio. So A plus thumbs up. I'm going to have to watch this video. All good things. You'll have to tell me more. Is that because you're a big fan of that movie? I haven't seen it. Yes, it's a weird, creepy, uh, I would say cult classic sort of thing. It's from Jim Henson. Um, yeah, pretty sure of that. It's got David Bowie. It's it's very weird. Uh, you should check it out, but you got to <laughs> approach it with the right sort of, it existed at a point in time. It's, anyway, <laughs> it's a whole thing. But I love that the character in it, in the picture that she has is a fantastic, kind, warm character. And it's this little budding friendship happening. It's just, it's a really nice little moment that she's captured there in her Twitter bio. And once you see the movie, then you'll understand. So I'll watch the talk, you watch the movie Labyrinth, and then we'll meet up and we'll exchange notes. It'll be great. That'll be the new show. We'll just talk about Labyrinth. <laughs> I'm down. I'm sure Tom would love to edit that. So everybody wins. <laughs> I'm pretty sure. We're going to take a quick break to tell you about today's sponsor, Scout APM. Scout APM is quickly becoming my go-to performance monitoring tool for Rails apps. I love opening it up to see a prioritized list of issues that I can quickly knock out before end users ever see them. With the weekly digest and alerts, I can rest easy knowing that Scout will let me know if issues arise. Ultimately, Scout APM empowers developers to spend more time building great products by minimizing the effort required to identify and resolve performance issues. Scout's developer-centric approach quickly pinpoints N plus one queries, memory bloat, and other abnormalities. Their tracing logic saves me a ton of time by tying bottlenecks back to the line of code causing the issue. So give Scout a try for free today and you'll have the performance insights you've been dreaming of within four minutes. Sign up through scoutapm.com slash bikeshed. That's all one word, B-I-K-E-S-H-E-D. And Scout will donate $5 to the open source project of your choice when you deploy. As an example project that you might be interested in, Inertia.js is a great one that I've talked about a few times on the episode. And uh, they could be a great place to send that money to. So give it a try. And thanks again to Scout for sponsoring this episode of The Bike Shed. So pivoting just a bit, you'd mentioned something earlier about how uh, we have overcorrected with our approach to comments because we've sort of like seen like the bad side and the damage that they can do. And that's really relevant to some of the conversations that ThoughtBot's been having around technical debt. In fact, Rick Gorman put together a panel to discuss how to sell technical debt to the business. And that's something that we'll be sure to include in the show notes for anyone who would like to check it out. But I know that you and I have strong feelings about technical debt. And um, we have a couple of ideas that we'd love to explore. So shall I kick us off and I'll uh, sort of like bring up the first one? Yeah, sounds great. So following that theme of where we may have overcorrected, do you think that we as consultants that we've overcorrected for technical debt? So as we have worked with a bunch of different teams and we have seen how technical debt can really put a strangle on teams and the speed at which they can deliver new features and also encountered a number of cowboy coding projects, which we may have to circle back to that because I, I would like to talk about that word cowboy. <laughs> Reclaim cowboy. cowboy. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, just starting there, how do you feel about technical debt and our approach to it? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I know that we saw a lot of interest in the technical debt panel, and this was clearly something that sort of folks have a lot of energy and enthusiasm and almost anxiety, I would say. And I've seen that with basically every organization that I've worked with. But I do wonder if 
we and, and probably I'll, I'll take this more on me, but have I overcorrected to the point that I no longer have the skill of just shipping it, just getting something out there into the world? Uh, and I don't really think so because I think I, I try to counter it with uh, let's reduce features, let's reduce scope, let's get something out there as quick as possible. But whatever we're building, unless we truly think it's throwaway, which even then I'm pretty sure that's always a lie, but let's build it in a way that we expect to be able to maintain down the line. I have come into so many projects that are, oh, this was just a spike, but then people liked it. So then we kept using it, but we never rebuilt the foundation and it's not great. Or, you know, this was built by a team that was on a hackathon and then it became a real project, but we never rebuilt it. Or just generally we worked on this, but there was so much pressure from the sales team, from internal expectations, from et cetera, et cetera, that we have never written as many tests as we wanted, don't have a great deployment story, don't feel confident refactoring, haven't refactored in years. And so there's just all of this technical debt. But I do wonder, am I overcorrected on that? Am I too averse to technical debt? The analogy in theory says like, you can take on debt and it can be a good thing. Like it's the way that most people buy houses. And that seems like a nice thing that people enjoy. And you couldn't do it without the debt. So does the analogy hold into the world of code or is technical debt almost always a bad thing and we should be trying to minimize or actually avoid it entirely? So I feel like I've talked around in a couple of circles there, but the idea that like, have I seen too much? Have I have I lost my ability to just hack about on the weekend and throw something up? I don't know. What are, do you feel this thing at all? I do very much. And I'm, I'm realizing kind of the way I, I walked into that question. Uh, there's a lot of context there that I'd love to sort of pull apart is when I mentioned, do you think that we're overreacting or that we have overreacted to technical debt? What in your mind, how does that play out? And like, what does it mean to overreact to the idea of technical debt? How would you describe that? Yeah, I, I guess I, I have this feeling, but now that I try and put it into words, I'm very, very purposeful about writing tests. That's the thing that I believe in deeply because I have found that they allow me to modify the system down the road. Uh, and I actually find that they're a helpful pressure at the time of writing, but more so it's about that future time. And I'm not really willing to compromise on that, even if it does in the moment slow things down temporarily. I'm much more purposeful with the structure of code. I'm going back and I'm refactoring as I write, and I'm not going to just quickly throw something together and, and get it out there. I'm always going to do at least one pass of scanning back through, trying to refactor, extract, rename, etc. And I possibly could have slightly more like immediate speed, but I feel like, I don't know, maybe I made this up. Maybe it's fine. <laughs> or maybe it sounds like like a humble brag, and I definitely don't mean it as this. I'm really considering like, oh, I can't not write tests. Look at me. Poor old me. <laughs> but yeah, I do like that just hacking around sort of thing. Like whenever teams talk about a spike, I'm always the person who's like, yeah, but promise me you will not deploy that and make it real. Promise me that if we decide this is a meaningful thing that we will go back and rewrite it. And then they'll promise and be like, I don't believe you. Promise it more. Get a notary write out a document and <laughs> sign and seal it because I've seen the opposite happen so many times. And so I think it's maybe that I'm just, I'm very cautious around it because I see it's so easy to pick up technical debt and it's so hard to do the constant diligent work of refactoring, renaming, adding test coverage, et cetera, et cetera. All right, cool. So I think I've got your definition. Overreacting means get a notary. Yes. Yeah. If, you, if you're calling in a notary, you might have overreacted about the technical debt, yes. 
That's fun. No, I, I feel the same way as you. And that's why I really liked that, that question sort of, um, considering like, are we too trained to the point that we have a hard time sort of like balancing out those values of when is it a good thing to ship quicker and get it out, even if it's not necessarily like the code that we're most proud of versus when is it best to sort of to keep iterating on that code before we ship it. So I think it's a really wonderful question and something that I definitely struggled with more in the past. I feel like I've gotten a little better with it as time goes by and understanding those trade-offs and when to use them. For me, the overreacting bit, or I guess how I might describe my sense of overreacting is I, I do want tests. Like I don't want there to always have to be constant manual testing to know that something works. So it's all goes back to like the support of what if we need to change this? So tests is one of them. Also the legibility of the code in the sense that someone else can read through this in the PR and sort of like understand what's happening that then if they needed to pick it up and do something with that. And then there's that sort of agreement of everybody on the team is like, yes, we should totally come back and work on this. Yes, we should totally go back and add types for this, or we should totally go back and add tests, but we're not going to do it now. That to me is the, okay, this is where we have the interesting conversation of like, we all recognize a thing that needs to get done, but we're intentionally pushing it off in favor of shipping now. And then the question is, when are we actually going to come back to do that work? Yeah, I think that particular nuance there of like, I am almost always opposed to the idea of, oh, yeah, we we really should do that. Let's put a card in the backlog to revisit that refactoring cleanup, et cetera. And I think that's probably the most normal, like, let's not write any tests is a thing that few organizations that we work with are saying, but let's defer refactoring, let's defer that cleanup work. That feels like a more real version of it. And I just, I don't know, I can't, I can't do that in good conscience, I guess is a way to describe it. I have done it because it's important to have that back and forth with product management and it's not our decision alone to make that, but I will push pretty hard for let's make the change while we're here in the code. Let's make refactoring be a part of the continuous process of delivery, not something that we alternate back and forth from. Yeah, I'm grateful that I have gone down that road where I have made that trade-off before when I was working on a project and we decided it was a TypeScript project and we as a team, uh, just there were a few of us, we were still learning TypeScript and how to add type. So we were a bit slow when it came to working through that particular bit of the code. And we had that discussion of, well, let's defer adding types. And it felt very akin to saying, well, let's defer and add tests later. But at that point, I felt the pressure as well where we really needed to ship. So I was like, okay, let's do this and we'll come back and add the types. And now that I've had that experience and I've gone back and tried to add those types, it was a painful enough experience that it will stick with me that I'm not willing to make that trade again. I understand if there are times where you still make some guesses here or there, like if you're not really sure how to test something, but you write a test and you come back to like the do your best but anything that feels so wholesale as to like let's like defer all types or all testing until later that's the part where i start to feel i'm like this is going to be tremendous work to come back and do this later and that's when the trade-off doesn't feel worth it anymore yep that resonates with me and i remember that particular period of your life and uh it was rough Uh, i think it's always rough we imagine that like there's an equal cost to doing let's add the tests in the future let's add the types in the future But because you're out of the context, because you've written the code without those constraints and that structure around it, it's so much harder. It's actually, I think, a case where the debt analogy really works. It's like you could pay a dollar today or $10 in the future, but that's future me's problem. So let's do the $10 in the future option. And it's the same sort of thing of like you can put in one unit of effort to add the types as you write them or 
you can put in one and a half units of effort down the road or whatever. You know, there's some multiplier. I don't know the actual number. I could make it up and I could be Chris's constant. But that idea definitely feels true. So then let's say we're in a particular scenario where we are working on a feature and we've reached that point where we're trying to determine, is this good enough and are we ready to ship or are we shipping with technical debt? How do you how do you know like when your feature or your code is at that good enough point to ship? Yeah, I, I do think this is an incredibly subtle line uh, and frankly, probably somewhat unfair to ask of, say, newer developers who have more recently started doing this sort of work, but also perhaps more recently joined the organization. I think that's where code review and supporting across your team becomes really important. I have definitely worked in organizations where the developers have been on the team for longer. They're shipping very solid code, but the newer developers on the team are making a bit more of a mess, let's say, but they're not empowered or supported to do otherwise. And the few times that they've like, they get a bunch of code review feedback, but then they're on their own to make those changes, or it's not there, they don't understand the feedback or have the language and the patterns and those sort of things to make those changes. But they're, you know, they're getting that pressure through code review. I think that's a bad situation. Because I, I think this is a very subtle line. When is it good enough? For me, there's almost always, you know, one pass at any level, whatever I'm like, ideally things are shipped in small increments. And so, you know, if it's a pull request I've worked on for a day, it's a feature branch, I'll do, you know, a pass at the end of my, I'll do sort of my own code review, but it's very much a intuition sort of thing at that moment. Test coverage is probably the thing. Like, do I know, will a test tell me if I've broken this behavior? Testing from the outside perspective, testing from a user perspective is a critical part of that to make sure that I'm not like just connecting random things together and saying, yes, they're connected now, but actually saying, will a user experience negative outcomes? And I want to make sure I have coverage for that. That's what matters. Yeah, I, I very much agree with all of that. My team's having a conversation about this currently that's really interesting, where we had to build a feature to pass a very specific government requirement test. So we built that feature and we've passed. Uh, but now we are having the conversation of, so what next? Are we done with this? Do we walk away from it? Or are there changes that we need to make? And the resolution that we came to is we want this feature to be in a state that if a developer who hasn't touched this code at all and hasn't worked on this feature, that they would be able to then pick up that work and then expand upon it versus us saying, hey, this is the feature and I'm sorry. Here you go. <laughs> Or here's the code for that feature. So if there is an apology that has to go with it, that kind of feels like my standard and also having the test. But that's something that we uh, had a great conversation around. Are, what are the pitfalls? Where are people going to really get tripped up? What are the areas that we think we could clean up now, like spend uh, iteration on, and that will improve the life of the next person that needs to come along and work on this code? Yeah, that makes sense. And I appreciate that pay it forward mentality. I think the way that you asked the question put me into sort of a static mindset of like, how do I look at a given piece of code and decide if it's good enough? And I, I don't have a good answer for that. But I think my actual answer is more dynamic in that as time is going on, as we're working within the system, what sort of failures are we seeing? Are there a lot of errors? Is the app having performance problems? Those sort of things. And that's something that isn't true at a point in time, but is true over time. Do we constantly notice that the words that we use to describe the system when we're just having conversations or say when we're interfacing with the product team, are they different than the words that are in the code? There's sort of like a, a threshold for me of like, ah, we just keep getting errors in this thing and it's a critical subsystem. You know what? 
we've got to fix that. And then the next time I'm in that code, it's going to be all the more important to me to try and address that. Or similar with the naming things of like, we used to call it profiles, but now there are accounts everywhere in the code. It says profile. At some point, we got to bite off that work and make that change because I think that really matters. Or performance is another one where that's, you know, it can just creep up on you and catch you off guard. Uh, but it's it's very much that sort of thing. Do we have confidence when we're deploying? Can we deploy on a Friday at three or not? Like what's the, how late into a Friday can you deploy? That's a, a random like watermark that I would use to decide, is it time to spend some refactoring time? That's a fun one. Yeah, I was also trying to think of more like concrete uh, ways to identify like when code is done. And I like what you were saying, because it resonates with the idea of does it have test coverage? So are the specs green uh, would be an important one. Is it performant? Not in the sense that it has to be the fastest running code, but is it going to slow down the page or slow down something else drastically? And have other developers read this and understood it? I think those are my three top things I would look to immediately for determining if code is good enough to be shipped. One thing that does come to mind for me on this is we're talking a lot about tests as one particular way in which we can add quality or, or protect the system. But tests are definitely not a goal in and of themselves. And I just listened to an episode of Full Stack Radio. I think it was yesterday that I listened to it. And it was with Gary Bernhardt, who he's a voice that I have followed in the programming world for years and years. There's Destroy All Software screencasts and other work that he's done. Um, he's probably had more of an effect on me than anyone else in the programming world. And the conversation that he and Adam Wathen had on the podcast was about TypeScript and then TypeScript and tests or a type system and tests. And does it allow you to write fewer tests? Do we want that? Is that a good thing? And I really liked the sort of pragmatism of the conversation. I see Gary Bernhardt as a very strong proponent of testing, one of the strongest. And yet uh, he described the system that they have where there's a back end, which is TypeScript and a front end, which is a React TypeScript app. And there's almost no tests on the front end because it's really just a bunch of components that are sort of piping data through. TypeScript actually does a really good job of covering that. And so despite the fact that they have a ton of lines of code there, they don't need additional tests to feel confident in that. Uh, they do have browser level tests using Cypress. So they're actually seeing the fully integrated system. Does it work? And again, I know that Garrett Bernhardt is a particularly picky individual about that sort of thing. I just saw him trying to interact with Stripe and having some back and forth on Twitter about why can't I just have my tests go to the Stripe page and interact with Stripe? I want to know that my payment flow, the most important flow, works. Why can't I do this? And he was struggling with various aspects of that. But that idea that what we're seeking is confidence, not tests. Types are great because they're another way to get that. And like you and I have talked about using Elm, and we basically don't write tests when we're in Elm other than browser level feature specs. That's a thing that comes to mind is like, how do we measure quality? How do we know if it's a good system? It's not lines of code or coverage or things like that. I've never really chased coverage as a metric. Uh, have you ever paid much attention to code coverage in terms of like test code coverage? I think when starting a new project, it's a fun fact to have. Like <laughs> if there's something that I can run to understand, like what am I up against? Like how big is the safety net that I have mm -hmm. as I'm entering this world? That point, I appreciate it. But otherwise, I think that's the only time that I would really pay attention to like the amount of test coverage. That makes sense. Fun fact. Fun fact. We got a bunch of coverage. And now we're going to take a quick break to tell you about today's sponsor, FusionAuth. FusionAuth provides authentication, authorization, and user management for any app. It's a complete identity and access management tool that saves your team time and resources. Drop in FusionAuth and you can easily add support for complex standards like OAuth, OpenID, Connect, and SAML to your application. Need additional login features or complex compliance requirements managed? FusionAuth makes that simple too. 
It's built for devs to deploy anywhere and integrate in minutes, and it scales to hundreds of millions of users. Plus, it's free forever. Seriously. Try it today and they'll send you a free t-shirt. If you're looking for more features like breached password detection, advanced registration forms, LDAP integration, and support with guaranteed response times, check out FusionAuth's paid editions. For a limited time, they're offering Bike Shed listeners a 25% off promo using code BIKESHED, all one word, BIKESHED. Uh, so you can visit fusionauth.io slash podcast, enter that, and you'll be able to learn more. Let's see, there are two more questions that I think are worth digging into here. One is around taking on technical debt. So we've talked mostly about our aversion to that, uh, but occasionally this can be a tool that can allow us to achieve some goals. So when would you consider taking on technical debt or what's the sort of point of view that you have around that? I am trying to think back to experiences that I've had where I've taken on technical debt so I can give like a real concrete, like, yes, this paid off and it was a positive experience. And I feel that I have had those moments where we have worked on something where maybe it wasn't the most extensible code. So it's more taking on that technical debt of maybe this code will be a little more challenging to come back and extend and work with, and it would benefit from some refactoring. That type of technical debt, I'm more willing to accept, especially if it's something that we need to get out into the world and we're still iterating on it. So we don't really know what this is going to look like and how much users are going to interact with it. So I'm okay with getting that out and that sort of technical debt. I also really appreciate it as a tool. Like if it's something that you need to get out into the world and you really don't have time, like let's say we're in a Stephanie nightmare and we just can't write any tests at all and we we don't have coverage and we just have to deploy it, then that's also an option. But then we just need to have the hard conversation of like, okay, if this goes really well and people start using it and we know we can get concrete feedback, like I'm going to want to know at what point are we then going to go back and revisit this and write the test. And it needs to be like within the same sprint or the one right after it, because after that point, then we haven't really upheld our deal of where, yes, we're going to take on this technical debt, but then we're going to repay it. We're just, we're continuing to borrow and borrow. So kind of going back to like that financial analogy, like at some point, like you made a deal and you need to stick to that deal. Uh, I feel like I'm talking circles around the question you actually asked me <laughs> So when I would take on debt. Uh, so I think that's it. Like I, I would need that notary to come in and say, when are we going to accept this debt? <laughs> if it was to the extent that we're going to have zero test coverage for some of the other areas, then I'm far less worried about it in the sense that if it comes down to more like we're going to need to clean up the code or make it more legible for the next person, then I'm fine with taking on that type of debt and understanding that we will revisit it in the next developer that works on this, it may take them longer to implement their feature or their work because they also need to include some refactoring. I don't know that I love that answer, but that's where I'm at right now. I liked it. I felt like it, it hit a lot of good points, although I think it's it's a subtle, like it's another intuition sort of thing. And so it's hard to give a pointed answer to something like this. I think a version of the answer in my head that I think aligns with what you were saying is for short term goals, or especially when there are like external deadlines or constraints on the team that we really can't move that are not too far out. So we're talking like a few weeks, maybe a month at the absolute highest, we can reduce the amount of refactoring, test writing, etc. temporarily just go for speed. But that can only be a very short period in my mind, because you're it really is like you're accruing debt and it's going to be harder to pay down the longer you wait, the less you use the normal practices that you have. The other version of things that come to mind is something that I wouldn't necessarily consider technical debt, but others might, which is around duplication. 
There are a lot of cases where we end up with duplication in our system. We have an existing workflow. We want to add a new workflow that's very similar but slightly different. And one way to do that is to totally refactor the existing thing so that it can both do its initial purpose but also this new one. I will actually more often these days copy the code over and maybe even a third time and then take a step back and sort of squint at it and see if there is a common extractable thing. But maybe even not because, frankly, I've been burned so many times by premature, slightly incorrect abstractions that are harder to work with down the road. And so duplication as a specific thing, it is not immediately obvious to me that that is technical debt. So it's something that I'm fine letting sit around for a while. Yeah, I am so good at over-engineering and trying to dry up my code. And I've learned that lesson the hard way many times to the point that I'm very much like you. I really embrace duplication because I want to see that consistent behavior across several areas before then I'm really interested in drying it up. And over time, I've gotten better at understanding like when it's going to be in my benefit to go ahead and dry it up early. But I'm, I'm not scared of a bit of duplication before then really understanding the concept that I'm working with and revisiting it to refactor it because I've I've actually gotten bit more by those early abstractions than I have by duplication. And so I, I, I lean more towards like I'd rather have the duplication and then revisit it later to confirm like, is this thing really like the other thing that I thought it was going to be like? Yeah, that's that's essentially where I'm at on it. So we've talked about a bunch of different aspects here. I think the last thing in my mind is how do you go about paying down technical debt? Let's say you're in a system, it's got some rough areas and how do you resolve that? And I think the the pointed thing that I've seen that I'm interested in your thoughts on is the full-on stop the presses, emergency stop on the wall, no new code is written, we are just in refactoring mode. And then you're in that mode for a while, and then eventually you get to go back into feature mode. This is going to lead the witness, but I'm personally averse to that approach, but I'm intrigued as to, have you experienced that? What do you think of it? Has it worked when you've seen it, if you've seen it? I don't think I've ever seen that or I haven't been a part of a team that's done that where they've gotten permission to completely stop the presses and just work on refactoring. I feel like I've always been on the opposite end where we are always requesting as developers, like, can we have time to work on this? We think it's very important. And when can we fit this into the sprint? So I haven't been part of that exact approach. I could see that working if it were for a sprint. Oh, you know what? I take it back. I have seen that once or twice on a team and it was around the holidays. So it would say like if we didn't have something important that we need to ship and we're sort of in that mode of we want people to be more relaxed and enjoy the holidays with their family. So then we go into more of a we're not doing any big feature work and instead we're going to focus on updating the application and refactoring. And that's been really pleasant. I have really enjoyed that. So that was a, a positive experience in my mind. What were some of the issues that you ran into? Because it sounds like you've been on the team that did try to stop the presses and that didn't work. Yeah, to varying degrees, some where it's like a large scale effort, other cases where there's very much this like on off mentality with regard to refactoring. We're either refactoring or we're doing feature work, but those are very different things. And we switch back and forth depending on sort of how broken things feel at any given point in time. And I think it's that mindset that I see being difficult to work with. Um, one of the things that I really believe is it is best and easiest to do refactoring and reduce technical debt type work when you're in the code, when you're actually making other changes. Like there may be some really gnarly code over in the billing section, but no one's had to touch it in two years. It runs. No one really knows how it works, but it works. That's true. We know that from like a black box perspective, the money comes in correctly. The accountants agree. So 
we're fine. And it's almost detrimental and dangerous to go into that space. So like maybe the next time we have to make an upgrade to the billing system, that's a time to work on it. But just saying the billing system needs refactoring, I found that to actually lead to, to bad outcomes where we're actually introducing breakage into the system in places that was that were actually just working. But also the just mindset of refactoring and writing new code are these separate ideas. I think they should be very firmly entwined. And also the idea that like refactoring is this big bang activity. I would much rather it's done in the small. Most pull requests are either preceded by another pull request that refactors and makes the change easy, or perhaps actually include a little bit of it depending on the size and those sort of things, but that it's very much part of the regular cadence of the work that we're doing as opposed to this other activity that we occasionally get agreement to switch over to. I totally agree. I, I agree with like the mindset that you don't want to have that on and off mentality. And my current team does a really nice thing where they have engineering time. And essentially, it's uh, it's kind of like ThoughtBot investment time where they get to pick up something that is interesting to them that they want to work on. Perhaps it's refactoring. Perhaps it's maybe exploring a part of the code base that they haven't gotten to work with. But that feels akin to that idea of like every week you get to work on something that's interesting to you and that will benefit the company and the specifically the company application. But that way it is sort of that built in mindset of we're not just pushing new work that we also get to improve the existing code base that we have. There's an article by Sandy Metz that maybe you've read, but if you haven't, I think you'd really enjoy it. But it's called The Half-Life of Code. And I'm going to read her description of it. It's actually someone, Dan North is a person that created this idea of the half-life of code and his talk software that fits in your head and describes the half-life of code as the amount of time required for half of an application's code to change so much that it becomes unrecognizable. And a lot of the article talks about that parts of your applications that change the most also cost the most. So that goes back to when you're talking about billing, like you may have part of your code base and it could be ugly code, but ugly code doesn't cost money, especially if you're not having to extend it and you're not having to work with it. It's code that changes. That's what costs money. So that's where it's really worth investing your time and your team's energy and making that code easy to extend, easy to work with, making it performant and keep iterating on that part of your code base. So you're really getting the most value. And then I guess circling all the way back to where you talked about when to allow technical debt, then that's one of the areas where it starts to feel fine. Like someone may try to classify that as technical debt because the code is a little gnarly to work with. But if we're not actually having to change that code, then that cost feels fine until proven otherwise. Uh, so yeah, it's a really good article. I'll throw a link to it in the show notes for others to read. Is it low interest technical debt or high interest technical debt? That's the question. And I think <laughs> th this argues that there are things that are low interest. And so, yeah, just put them on auto pay and you know, pay interest only for a while because that's fine. Buy yourself a boat <laughs> with the money you're saving from the. Uh, but I, I do like that idea. Like if I come into a team and there's a lot of technical debt around, my view is like not stop the presses and only work on that but we need to be working in the system and observing the things that are the sort of outliers that really need the attention there's a graph that i want to say code climate has as part of their platform where it maps complexity in terms of like the code complexity metrics against churn so how often is this code changing and how complex is it and so then you get these like outliers in the top right hand corner of the graph where it's high complexity and high churn that's a problem. That's where the bugs are hiding. That's where you're going to lose money. So that's your high interest debt right there and really focus on that. And I like that visual analogy for it. Yeah, that'd be cool. I don't think I've seen that, but that sounds really cool. I'll have to keep an eye out for it. 
Expanding on the the question that you had earlier talking about how do we address technical debt? And we've discussed like a couple of ways of identifying like when it's worth addressing it. And then also, should you stop the presses? And the answer is no. Uh, you should sprinkle it into your normal activities. But the other approach that I've seen is when someone will send off like one developer and they're like, okay, we have a problem and we're going to take developer X because developer X is very knowledgeable and skilled. And we're going to send them off on this solo mission and they're going to fix all of our problems and the rest of the team is going to continue to work on feature work. That one I've experienced and that one just doesn't work. It's very hard for a developer on their own to improve a code base. And they're also not sharing that knowledge with others. And it's a very isolating experience. And then it often creates gaps in understanding like what they're working on, what's sort of like the end goal of that refactor. Maybe that's part of the other problem too, is because then it just becomes this really monumental task instead of finding ways to chip away at it. And it feels like we always need to know like, what is the goal? When is this going to ship? So that way we can confine our work to something that is meaningful and creates value. So yeah, the solo dev also is one approach that I've seen that I wouldn't advocate for. I was so worried when you started to say that, that you're going to be like, I've seen that work really well. I'm like, oh, goodness, no, that's the opposite. Of, uh, <laughs> there's also the, I want to say it's from a Zelda game, but it's Navi, the little uh, fairy that supports you throughout. It's not safe to go alone was immediately the thing that popped into my head there. Uh, take a friend. We all need a little Navi. <laughs> we do. Uh, oh, man, a little pairing Navi for when you're going into those weird deep water refactorings. That sounds nice. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I totally agree with that. Like, oh, okay, let's take the person who knows the system the best. Let's isolate them, give them the scary. Honestly, like I've seen refactoring efforts fail as well. And so either you're up against the wall trying to make this hard thing that no one else has been able to do for the longest time, trying to like solve that problem, or you fail. And both of those are, are hard and sad. And you can have great outcomes from that. But I think more often you see the other side. And I think that's a a way to lead to burnout and other things uh, and like you said siloing of knowledge and a bunch of other stuff that we just don't want so when you have these big refactorings that at least should be done by two people but also break it down into smaller pieces and all those other things that are sort of just the same way that we talk about all the other work I think one of the other things I always keep in mind with technical debt too is when I join teams and they're aware there's like a part of their code base that they know is a little ugly, a little difficult to work with. And you can tell by the way they say it, they're kind of like, you know, I'm sorry, like we know it's this way, but we haven't had time to fix it. And that's sort of like apologetic stance. And I always say to them, I'm like, I get it. Like, I mean, you're working hard to get where you are today. And that code has served its purpose. And it's gotten you to the point that you have a team and that you're able to continue to grow. And so it's more of it's that Marie Kondo approach of like, thank the code and then let it go. But there's no need to feel poorly about it because it's gotten you to the state that you're at. So we like to speak so poorly of technical debt because it can cause so much pain, but it's also a really nice tool that has helped us get to where we are today. It just is also something that then we need to address. I think that is an absolutely perfect note upon which to end this conversation. <laughs> Thank you, technical debt. And now I <laughs> let you go. <laughs> All right. Well, then on that note of mine, shall we wrap up? Let's wrap up. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. The show is produced and edited by Tom Obarski. If you enjoyed listening, one really easy way to support the show is to leave us a quick rating or even a review in iTunes as it helps other people find the show. If you have feedback for this or any of our other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore bike shed on Twitter. And I'm at Chris Toomey. And I'm at S. Vicari. Or you can email hosts at bikeshed.fm. Thanks so much for listening to The Bike Shed, and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. 
ThoughtBot is your expert design and development partner. Let's make your product and team a success.